Show me the money. This is the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast. Picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rake Fanika. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be A Better Investor podcast. It's a podcast where I pick the brains of the top professional investors in the country and we delve into their own personal investment approaches. We also talk about the research processes they follow to identify potential investments, their personal best and worst investments ever, and we also look at what is in their personal asset portfolios. And the idea is to find the golden nuggets from their perspectives and experiences uh, to assist amateur retail investors to become better investors. My guest today is Jean-Pierre Fester. He has been in the industry for more than 15 years. It actually seems much longer. And uh, he has managed portfolios at Melville Douglas Investment Management, 361 Asset Management and Fairtree. And uh, he recently founded his own business, Protea Capital Management. John Pierre, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, you've been doing the rounds a bit, but how is it now to run your own business? Yes, Rake. I've worked at a number of other places, as you mentioned, which I think was a good experience to then bring me to the place in the middle of 2019 when I decided to set up my own business, Protea Capital Management. So I think all of that was good grounding. What is different is my core job is to sit and to read and to think and to invest people's money. But when you start your own business, there are other things that you need to give attention to as well. As a CEO of a business, you need to manage other people. And we have a team of six people. I need to to make sure that the whole team is pulling in the same direction. You need to do some marketing. You need to get involved into operational matters, strategic matters. So it is more complicated to run your own business versus working for someone else. But I must say, I actually enjoy it. I have a natural tendency to want to be in control. And I like being in control of the strategy of the business. And at the same time, thank goodness, because the business has been running quite smoothly, it hasn't taken up too much of my time that I can still spend the majority of my time on the core business of managing people's money. Yeah, and that's a big responsibility because it's the life savings of many people. But what is your approach, especially regarding your own personal investment portfolio versus the life savings of other people? Do you approach them differently? I like to, and and the saying has been said a few times before, I believe a, a good fund manager should eat his or her own cooking. So they should invest their own money the same way they invest other people's money. You can also flip it around by saying that I've always managed my money in a certain way. And when I started an asset management business, I then effectively invited other people to invest with me and I would invest their money like I do my own. So I always firstly had an affinity for Warren Buffett and I read all the letters that he has written for Berkshire Hathaway, more than 50 years of letters that that he has written. And through that, I have a strong grounding in value investing. But in his letters, he's not a purist, I would call it. He's got a very big influence from growth investing as well, which came from Philip Fisher, not just Benjamin Graham, who's the father of value investing. And through more Philip Fisher type influences, Buffett became a quality investor, but quality at a value price. And that resonated with me. And that became my own philosophy as well, where I like to find great companies 
and not to overpay for them. And then when you buy them, you hold them for the long term and that does very well for you. But at the same time, I also have a, a keen eye for detail and a key eye for seeing when things aren't right, when something is wrong. And that sense of, of seeing when something is wrong where maybe others don't also means that I have a, a natural uh, affinity for short selling, which means one makes money not when share prices rise, but when share prices fall. So I personally enjoy both these parts of my own investment philosophy that became Protea's investment philosophy, that is, look for these great companies to hold them for the long term, but at the same time, look for companies where something strange is going on, something is wrong, short those shares and try to make money through that as well and do both of those. And if one can do both well, the funds will do well over the long term. That is a, a quite a, a common investment theme. You look for great companies and buy them at cheap prices, but it's not always easy to do. And many professional investors get it wrong, and they get it wrong more often than you would think. What, what is your hit rate and, and what do you aspire to achieve? We actually track both the hit rate and what you call the slugging ratio or the win-loss ratio in the performance of our funds. And I can tell you, we do that on a year. So the last time we, we did it was for 2021. And my long-term returns are slightly different. And I'll get to that. So firstly, our heat ratio, which means when we make a decision, when do we make money versus when we make a decision, when do we lose money, was around 60% for 2021. And over the long term, that's, that's the average as well for the business. And for me personally, roughly 60%. So six out of 10 times when I buy a share, it does go up. Or six out of 10 times when I short a share, it does go down. And the other ratio, which is important, the slugging ratio or win-loss ratio, is when you buy a share and you are right, how much do you make relative to when you are wrong, how much do you lose? And a good investor makes a lot more money on the winning positions versus losing on the losing positions. And you can actually have a below average hit ratio, but if your win-loss ratio is above average, you can be less right than wrong, but you make so much more when you are right that it compensates for not having a good hit ratio. Now, our win-loss ratio is around 1.1 for last year, which means we make one rand 10 on a winning position versus losing one rand on a losing position. So let me say that again. We make one rand ten on a winning position versus losing one rand on a losing position. Over the long term, that ratio is a bit higher. It's closer to 1.4, which is what we want to see because you want your winners to be much more profitable than what you lose on your losers. And therefore, it's important both to look at your heat ratio. You want to be right more often than being wrong. So you want it to be more than 50%. And looking at your win-loss ratio, which is you want, when you are right, to make a lot more in terms of profits versus what you lose when you are wrong. Yeah, but it's still a big portion of the portfolio which does not contribute to the profitability. You know, if, if you pick four dogs in a portfolio of 10 shares, it is still significant. And, and I'm saying this in the context of retail investors, people who try to invest their own money in the market. They do not always follow the most rigorous financial analysis process. They use other metrics to make buying decisions. Is the 6 out of 10 hit ratio, is that an industry average? Or do you know what the, the average is? And what are your perceptions of the hit ratios of amateur investors? I don't know what a typical hit ratio would be in professional active asset management. I wouldn't be surprised if it's roughly 6 out of 10, so roughly the same. 
But it's also important to note that when you have a hedge fund, a fund that also shorts, that necessarily brings down your hit ratio because you can actually slightly lose money on your short book, as we call it, all your shorts together. But that still is very good because it allows you to take that capital from selling shares short and buy more good quality companies on the long side. So typically, if you have a hedge fund strategy, it decreases your heat ratio, but it can increase your win-loss ratio. That's why we don't look at just the heat ratio. So we have an average heat ratio, but it's okay because of the shorting component. Secondly, there's a time in market cycles where this ratio is higher or lower, and there's a time in which your long positions make money, and there's a time when your short positions come into their own and they make money. So over the long term, you don't necessarily see that it was very valuable for, say, the short positions in the first quarter of 2020, when COVID hit, to actually make money when the long positions were under pressure. Now, you also asked what I think retail investors' uh, ratio is. And I would say in the retail market, there's also a differentiation between, I would call them patient retail investors and impatient retail investors. And I'll do the second one first. An impatient retail investor is an active retail investor. And I would say that's very dangerous. If you are a retail investor, it assumes or presumes that you are not doing investing as a full-time job. And for you to not doing it as a full-time job, but be very active to buy and sell quite often is not a good idea because you're probably going to make more mistakes. The only way really for the retail investor to compete with and sometimes to outperform professional investors is to be patient, to be more long-term orientated, to make less decisions. And if you make less decisions and you only wait patiently for those, the ones that are really almost obvious that they are good investment opportunities, then you can have a very high eat ratio, even better than the professional investors' eat ratios. Let's look at your personal portfolio and investments. What was the very first share you bought? When did you buy it and why? So the very first share I bought was, I was at university at the time, and it was the initial public offering of Telcom. And I remember that it wasn't a great time in the market. So from what I read in the newspapers, I wasn't sophisticated enough to go through prospectuses and analyze financial statements in detail yet. But what I read in the newspaper told me that Telcom was going to list at a relatively depressed valuation, which is good if you want to buy shares in that initial public offering. And at the same time, they offered a discount to the IPO price, initial public offering price, to retail investors. And therefore, you firstly got a very reasonable price. And then secondly, you also got a discount to that price. So my first purchase was 5,000 rands of Telcom shares when it first listed. And I held those shares for more than a decade, which means that I also got Vodacom shares out of Telcom when Telcom still unbundled Vodacom. Telcom used to own Vodacom. And that means that the shares did very well for me. And therefore, it, it was a very good start to my personal investment journey, I would say. Yeah, Telcom, definitely, it was an investment success, especially that decade after the listing. Was that your best investment ever? I would say that in percentage terms, that was one of them. The other one that comes to mind is in the property market. And I go back, you know, the SA property market did very well for a decade from roughly 2005 to 2015. And I bought quite significant property exposure in around 2012, and I held it till about uh, 2015. 
And uh, in those three to four years, the property shares that I bought increased a few multiples. They were more related to Eastern Europe rather than South Africa. I'm thinking of shares like Nepi Rock Castle. It was just Nepi at the time before the merger with Rock Castle. Uh, Fortress B shares. And those did particularly well for me. So that's another one that I would highlight that I made a, a very good return from. You've also made name for yourself by shorting Steinoff and African Bank. How do those companies rank or those shorting of the shares rank amongst your most successful investments? So that's the interesting thing about shorting. With a short, you can only make 100% of your money maximum. If it goes down by 100%, you make 100%. Well, with a long position through the wonder of compounding, you can make a lot more than 100%. Over time, with the beauty of compounding, you can make two, three, four, five hundred 500%. You can have a 10-bagger, which is 1,000%. And therefore, one generally over the long term makes a lot more money with long positions than you do short positions. So similarly with me, I've made a lot more money on the long side than the short side. But when but, you but get one of these... much quicker than they rise, don't they? Correct, correct. So in a short space of time, uh, you can make a very nice return on a short position if you time it correctly and you short and soon thereafter you have a, call it, catastrophic event. And that's sort of what happened in the case of both African Bank and Steinoff. And we had some other shorts as well. I made more than 90% on a Rebosa short. I made more than 90% on a Sendus short. So I can tell you that even though over the long term the shorts don't necessarily account for as much, one can do really well over the short term with a short position that then drops very sharply. And the biggest dog you've ever bought? That was early in my career, a share called Alliance Mining Supplies. And um, I effectively lost all my money because the share was suspended. So it effectively went to zero. And the interesting thing about Alliance Mining is that there was fraud that uh, happened within the company. And there were a few red flags, but I was... I was a bit naive about those red flags. One of the worst red flags was that the financial director of Alliance Mining was not a full-time financial director. It was a lady, and uh, she was a financial director of another company called African Dawn Capital. And you can't be the financial director of two companies, right? It is a full-time job. And I had met the lady in a, in a meeting, and she obviously could explain away the fact that she had two full-time jobs and she could do both well. But unfortunately, um, the job was not done well and there was fraud. And she was later found guilty and um, fined quite harshly by the FSCA. Uh, it's on their website. So uh, that's uh, Connie van Newkirk, who was involved at uh, Alliance Mining Supplies. What is your experience with retail investors? Uh, many of them are very uh, boastful when they beat professional investors. But what is your impression of the average South African retail investor? How good are they? It's difficult, again, to, to know what the average would be of the typical South African retail investor. What I can tell you is I started off managing friends and family money. And maybe because I was a friend and a family member, they were always patient with me and they never put too much pressure on me. And therefore, we were aligned in our long-term horizon. While I think more generally, if someone isn't your friend or your family member and that isn't that trust, uh, it's easier for a retail investor to get impatient, to not trust the process, to get thrown off course by cycles. And uh, even now recently, just in this first quarter of 2020, we've seen quite a harsh cycle in high quality companies in global markets that have been under significant pressure. And I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of retail investors, again, 
became impatient and did things like selling a lot of high quality shares because they fell maybe 20 or 30 percent and that's typically the trap that retail investors step in so there have been some studies that do show that unfortunately the big thing that trips retail investors up is they get impatient they sell at the wrong time after certain shares have fallen and therefore they don't partake in the recovery and the long-term wonder of compounding so that is I would think still the major issue for most retail investors. And that is also a, a common problem, impatience and emotion. How do you think retail investors should then approach it? Because emotion and impatience, those are poor investment strategies, but they are still probably dominating many investment decisions. Absolutely. So once again, if you think about behavioral finance, which is a, a whole area of study regarding this problem, People speak about greed and fear or hope even and fear. And that is that, you know, when things go well, people hope it will continue. They, they become greedy. And on the flip side, when things go badly, people get fearful and they think it will just get worse and worse and worse. And those two emotions actually have a much bigger impact on people's personal wealth rather than technical points of not being able to identify a great company or, or seeing them as problems in a company. So that should be the focus of most retail investors. And that is why the antidote almost of falling in this behavioral finance trap is to not look at your portfolio every day, is to not fall into the problem of knee-jerk reactions. It is to focus on the long term, stick to quality companies, don't try and time cycles. For instance, we're in the cycle at the moment where after four or five years of oil and gas companies not doing well, we have the petrol price, the oil price jumping, and then people want to get into oil and gas now. And it might be a good two or three years, but what's going to happen then? So you have these cycles, and I think retail investors who try to play cycles get into trouble. So rather stick to long-term quality, and that also defends against behavioral bias. Do you think retail investors understand risk properly? I think a lot of retail investors maybe have an intuitive sense of risk, and that means that, you know, Certain things can happen which has got a permanent negative impact on your portfolio. But some people don't learn about risk from other people's experience. They need to learn it themselves. And therefore, that can be quite an expensive lesson. So, you know, it's, it's once again almost the makeup of an individual. Are you typically a person that learns from other people's mistakes and therefore you are cautious in your personal conduct? Or do you typically need to make mistakes? People need to make the same mistake more than once before the penny really drops. And the same goes with your finances. So by nature, some people are more prudent, they are cautious, and in markets that means, for instance, they won't take on leverage, which I also think for most retail investors should not be something they do. You should not borrow money to invest, while those that don't learn lessons the first time around have probably learned some expensive lessons when it comes to leverage. So that's something to watch out for. Just lastly, what are the, the shares on your radar at the moment? So at the beginning of this discussion, Rick, we spoke about my career going back roughly 17, 18 years. And the first eight or nine years of that, I was focused on South Africa. And for the last eight or nine years, my focus has shifted more towards the global equity markets. And at the moment, after a very tough first quarter, when it comes to quality companies, where the technology companies, other than the likes of uh, Apple, Amazon, and, and Alphabet, most other technology companies have been under significant pressure. Their share prices have fallen by more than 50%. I think there's a great opportunity with the strong levels of the RAND against the dollar currently to invest in US tech shares and some other European 
tech shares, which have been under pressure, fallen a lot. And I do believe that current prices offer a long-term opportunity. So shares like Netflix, like PayPal, like Etsy are some of those that are on my buy list at the moment. Thank you, John Pierre, for sharing your insights with us today. That was John Pierre Verster, the founder, CEO, and chief investment officer of Protea Capital Management. Show me the money. That was the Money Web, be a better investor podcast with Rake for Kneecap. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the MoneyWeb podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.